Parents, you know that one of the struggles of having little kids is clothing them. All right, there are a lot of struggles when it comes to parenting that are bigger than clothing. But really, my kids, they outgrow their stuff so quickly and they play so hard in the stuff they wear. Their clothes are constantly getting stained and ripped. The other day, my daughter was wearing her favorite t-shirt, and I asked her if she had just straight up used it as a napkin, to which she replied, yeah. I mean, there was just ketchup and mustard all over it. But as a parent who is also mindful of the things I purchase, I've struggled over the years to find a brand of kids clothing that's durable, stylish, and also environmentally sustainable. My guest today is doing what she can do to change that. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman of Still Being Molly, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, companies, and small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I interview an entrepreneur, a CEO, nonprofit, director, community leader, or just an incredible person who's trying to make a positive impact, not only through their personal life, but also with their career. My goal is to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact wherever you are. My guest this week is Mariana Saxe, founder of the triple bottom line enterprise Jackalo, an industry changing line of durable and organic children's clothes that accepts all of the used clothes back to be repaired and resold or responsibly recycled, thus reducing the environmental impact of the children's apparel sector. This was such an interesting conversation, and I love what Mariana is doing. It is so innovative and so unique. I cannot wait for you to hear her story. So now, on to my conversation with Mariana. Mariana, all the way from the Netherlands. I love technology. It's just so cool that we can be talking to each other on the other sides, uh, other sides, or sort of. We're sort of on the same side of the world. Uh, An ocean away. Yeah, an ocean away. Um, I am just so happy to have you on the show today. So thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Molly. Mariana, I want to just get right into the conversation because there's so much I want to talk to you about. Um, So I want you to give us the Mariana 101. Tell us who you are and how you got to where you are today. Sure. My name is Mariana Saxe. I am the founder of Jackala, which is a line of durable and sustainable playwear for kids um, ages 4 to 14, and sometimes the, the moms in their lives, too. Um, I started Jackalo in July of 2018, and before that, I had a career in public health. Um, so a bit of a career shift from um, what I was doing before, but I've spent my entire life working generally in social change, um, and that's kind of been my guiding force um, through everything I've done, whether it's direct service, philanthropy, helping nonprofits hone their language about the change they're trying to create, and now changing the fashion industry for children um, and for families. I'm from Washington, D.C., and about three years ago, I moved to the Netherlands. Wait, can I ask uh, where where in D.C. are you from? Uh, I'm from Cleveland Park, around the corner from the National Zoo. Oh, that's awesome. So I grew up in Herndon, which is in you know okay. in Northern Virginia, right outside of D.C. Yeah. So I spent, you know, well, the first, you know, 18 years of my life there until I went to college. So, you know, and a lot of people will say I'm from D.C., but then it actually means that they're around from around D.C., the D.C. metro area. But I'm like, oh, no, you're actually like from D.C. That's awesome. 
Yeah, I am truly from DC. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I similarly, I was there until I was 18 and then went off to college, moved back there for a couple of years um, and went to graduate school for public health and social work in Michigan, where I met my husband. Um, and then we spent about 10 years in Philly, uh, where I was working in public health. And he got an opportunity to move abroad. Um, and I was ready for a bit of a change myself. And so we packed up everything with our then six-year-old. And I was seven months pregnant. And we moved to the Netherlands. That's incredible. So when you moved to the Netherlands, because you said this was four years ago? Three years ago. Three years ago. So when you moved to the Netherlands, were you kind of just going, were you personally going with a plan? I know that he, your husband got a job there. Were you like, I'll just kind of go and figure it out? Or, because I know that obviously this was pre the launch of Jackalow. Yeah. Um, were you just kind of like going with the flow or did you kind of have an idea of what you wanted to do when you got over there? Yeah, I, I definitely had an idea of what I wanted to do. So I... um had a great relationship with my former employer and they were allowing me to work remotely and work part-time. And, you know, they knew I was, obviously they knew I was having a baby. So they said, you know, you can decrease your schedule if you want to keep it up, if you want to, whatever. And I use that flexibility to give me time to create the vision for Jackalow. So I knew that I wanted to do something around durability in children's clothes. Um, my older son has always been very, very active and would rip his pants within, you know, two weeks of getting them. And so I would always like look for more durable pants, but I found that the companies that were offering durability didn't always meet my standards when it came to environmentalism or ethics. Um, so I really felt like there was an opportunity to do something differently. And that was reinforced by a mom's group that I was part of online on a Facebook group where I noticed that everybody was posting their pictures of their kids blown out knees on and saying, you know, where do you get pants that last? And no one could find anything, you know, they would, they would have a few options, but then their sensitive kids, the ones who like to wear sweatpants would not accept them. So I thought, you know, I think there's something here. I think that there is a problem to be solved. And so I used that time moving here to be a little bit closer to some parts of the fashion industry, closer to fabric production, um, close to Portugal, where we um, produce our clothes, where I could go down and see factories, et cetera. And I figured what better place and opportunity to figure this business out and start something new. I love that. Now, I am always curious when I talk to those that have started companies, especially um, companies that are manufacturing some type of product. So you have this idea and you're like, okay, I want to start a ethical, sustainable clothing line for children that's also durable. So you have yeah. this, this seed of an idea. Where do you even begin to, I mean, and I know that you said that you're you're closer to kind of where stuff is made and all that kind of thing and, and being able to, you know, go to factories yourself, but like, did it just kind of start with a Google search or were you like, okay, I'm just going to start calling some factories. How did you begin to find these durable materials? Like, I'm just so fascinated by that, that process when you have, when you're going from the seed of an idea to actually beginning to 
manufacture it and get it out into the world. Yeah, it's a lot of trial and error. Um, I started out, perhaps not the way I would <laughs> if I did it over, I started out by going to a major trade show for fabric, um, really for the entire fashion industry, but it's a major trade show for fab fabric um, in Paris called Premier Vision. And they have basically a hundreds of fabric suppliers there um, and some manufacturers. And I just got a business card printed up and started walking the floors there, talking to manufacturers, um, talking to fabric mills, and kind of seeing where I could go with any of them. Nothing panned out with them because they're really looking to work with established brands. Uh, and many of them don't have the minimums that a startup can meet. Um, so they're looking at selling a thousand meters of fabric, which is a tremendous amount, especially when you're looking at kids' clothes and making that much clothing to start with is not sustainable. When you are looking to test an idea, you have to start with a much smaller quantity and find a factory that's willing to work with very small quantities and grow with you. Um, so that was a good education but not the right path. And so I kind of took a step back and um, connected with a group online called Startup Fashion. And um, I got a mentor, uh, a man named Dana Freed, who's a fabulous mentor and has worked with many successful fashion companies. And he understood me and he understood my vision and helped me develop a path and learn to speak the language that factories want to hear. So a factory doesn't want to hear, I have one garment and I want to make 10. They're not gonna work with you. They wanna hear, I have a collection, I want to start small, but I plan to grow. You know, this is, this is real, you know, they want to see that you've got what, what in the industry are called tech packs, which are Excel files mm -hmm. that have a ton of information about your product, measurements, drawings, um, details about the stitches. Um, so there's a lot of homework that goes into getting those tech packs ready so that you can reach out to a factory. And then I did my fabric sourcing on my own um, because I had very specific things that I was looking for. Initially, I wanted to go with a technical fabric, like something that was mountaineering. Um, but the more I looked into it, the more I felt like the environmental certifications on a lot of those were a little bit fluffy, um, and sometimes a lot fluffy. Uh, and when it comes to the life cycle impact of many of those fabrics, it's not great. So some of them will use recycled materials, um, but often they're using the synthetics that when you wash them, uh, create microplastics that go into our waterways. And there's no really good way to filter those out. Even Patagonia is trying to work on that and prove that issue, working with washer and dryer manufacturers to filter some of that out. But if you're looking at a high-use garment, like a pair of pants that are going to need to be washed frequently, I ultimately felt like a natural fiber was the better way to go and to look for a durable natural fiber. Um, so I found a lovely mill um, that is based in Germany and works with uh, sustainable producers in Uganda and Kyrgyzstan. Um, to raise cotton um, at the highest level of organic certification. And they use solar energy wherever they can. They really do a great job of 
making their cotton as sustainable as possible. Um, and, and one of the things that I love about them is that they're really, really willing to work with small quantities. And so that worked for me as a startup and between them and my factory that's willing to work with small quantities, it, you know, I think I found a, a good way to launch Jacklow. Did you have a background in design or did you just kind of like learn as you go? Uh, or did you, you know, like, cause I have a friend who also owns, um, an, an ethical clothing line, but she, I mean, she went to FIT, like her background yeah. is in design. She, you know, does all the sketches herself. She's like a beautiful artist. And every time she does like a, a sketch of her design, I'm just like, wow, you are so talented. Um, and you know, but for, I know I also have talked to other ethical fashion business owners who like, they have no background in design, but they're like, I know what I see in my head and I know what I want it to look like, but but did you know how to kind of like put thought to paper or did you work with somebody who was skilled in that area or did you just kind of learn as you went? Somewhere in between. So I've always been a maker. I learned to sew from my mother when I was a kid. I used to knit um, or I still knit, but I knit, I draw, I kind of am a jack of all trades when it comes to creative things. Um, so I, I could I could sew garments, um, not at a you know a factory level, not at that that skill set, um, but I I knew that I didn't have the initial skill set to do a technical drawing. So factories don't care if your drawing is truly beautiful; they care if it's accurate in terms of a representation, if it shows what kind of stitches you want where they can be really flat and kind of uninteresting drawings. And that's what's going to be the most useful to a factory. Um, so I worked with a freelancer who could do the technical drawings for just my first garment. And from there, I studied how to do technical drawings, what sort of information was needed. I'm by no means an expert, uh, but I can create a technical flat that is good enough that my factory understands what I'm trying to convey. And also I do very classic and kind of straightforward designs. So there's not a lot in there that's very complicated in terms of, you know, fancy stitches or embroidery or anything like that, 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 um, is going to be hard to read on a flat. So it's, it's something that I've learned as I've gone. And yeah, I think, you know, you can be on, you can be anywhere on the spectrum with this, as you said, with people who know nothing to begin with, or people who, you know, have a real strong background. But I do think that I'm helped by knowing, um, how to sew, so that I can understand the stitches that they're doing a little bit better. Yeah, you've got like a good foundation for it. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that you said in the beginning is that your entire life um, generally has been in some working in some form of, of, of social change. And you've really uh, it's been the guiding force in everything that you've done. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the things that I know about you, and this is something that um, that you and I have somewhat in common, is that there's been a lot of tragedy and um, hardship um, in the last you know few years that have really further kind of guided that purpose in your life and in your business. Um, yeah. 
And so I would love um, if you're willing to just kind of share a little bit more um, kind of about your experience. Yeah. So my, when I, my older son was about nine months old, my mother was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Um, if anybody out there has some, has someone in their life who's been diagnosed with that type of cancer, you're experienced in the medical field, you know, that this is a really terrible diagnosis to get, um, that there's no cure for it. And the treatment is palliative. Um, meaning that it's focused on keeping the disease in check um, as long as possible, keeping um, the person comfortable as long as possible. Um, and my mom, you know, she she lived longer than anyone expected her to live, uh, almost two years um, with this disease. But when my um, older son was two and a half, she uh, passed away. Um, and in the middle of my mother's illness, I got pregnant and I was really excited that, you know, there was a small chance if my mom continued to do as well as she had been doing, that she would meet this second child. And, you know, my mom was a baby lover. She loved her grandkids. And so I was really excited that this was even a possibility, um, about a month and a half into that pregnancy, I started feeling some weird symptoms. Um, you know, my breast tenderness that everybody knows is that hallmark symptom of early pregnancy would just come and go. It would just be totally gone. And then I started spotting. Um, and some spotting during pregnancy can be normal. Um, but some spotting really isn't. And that um, spotting turned out to be the early phases of a miscarriage that was a molar pregnancy. And a molar pregnancy is when the placenta is diseased um, and essentially becomes cancerous. And for me, that um, led to nine months of chemotherapy and two, uh, two DNCs first to clear um, the diseased placenta and there, there was no fetus. It was really just a diseased placenta. Um, and, um, and then nine months of chemotherapy, um, which, you know, started while my mother was ill and I went through chemotherapy when she passed away and continued that chemotherapy after, um, after her death. So I had, kind of one of those years from hell where you're dealing with the loss of the most important person in your life and, you know, your own struggling health. I'm taking a quick break from my chat with Mariana to talk about the incredible fall collection from Seiko Designs. You will be inspired by the richness of the season's colors like pebbled amore and oiled olive. The fall collection is not only a celebration of travel, but also a celebration of the journey within. My favorite, favorite pieces are the multi-way shawl in Leo, the How It's Made Matters tea, and the caftan in Chianti. They are just stunning, beautiful, ethically made fair trade pieces. Versatility is my love language, and so many of these pieces can be worn so many different ways. You are really getting the most for your dollar. To shop this incredible collection, go to SeikoDesigns.com slash Molly Stillman. That's S-S-E-K-O-D. 
designs.com slash Molly Stillman. Now back to my chat with Mariana. Obviously our situations are different, um, but also I had lost my mom um, and I had two second trimester pregnancy losses in 2018. So like I, while there's, they're different. Um, I saw a, um, actually I saw a tweet just this morning that I, I was like, I need to screenshot that and save that. And it said that drowning is drowning. People can drown in a puddle. People can drown in a pool. People can drown in a lake. People can drown in an ocean. Drowning is drowning. It, and and it was like an, an analogous to trauma or pain. And it was like pain is pain. Trauma is trauma. It just it's just different. Yeah. Um, and I just I thought, man, that is such a good analogy. Um, and and I don't know if you experienced this in your season of of just immense loss um, that is just incomprehensible. Um, but for me, I I know I experienced in my seasons of loss. Um, I've connected with other women who have lost their moms because it's especially when you're a motherless mother. Yeah. That is like a whole nother thing. Cause I mean, like I lost my mom when I was 17, but then when I became a mom, I felt like I lost her all over again. And that was just a really big challenge. And so like when you're, when you're motherless mother, it's like you connect with other motherless mothers because it's a pain that other people don't know and then when you lose a pregnancy um and gosh even and when you lose one especially in the way that you did it just it connects you with other women who have experienced something similar absolutely and yeah and and community it just provides this sense of community that is so needed um and so I just did you kind of find in that season that that community and connecting with other women um was how did that what did that do for you in those seasons oh that was invaluable for me um I found that the more I talked about it publicly the more people came out of the woodworks and shared their stories and that's why you know I think sometimes people look at me and they're like you know how do you talk about this Mm -hmm. you know how do you share this information and you know I'm willing to share this information with perfect strangers because I really believe that we can't hide in our loss and in our sadness, that the more we keep that inside, the more we struggle alone and that more people need their peers to speak up when they've experienced loss and sadness like this. Um, It just gives them the opportunity to know that they're not alone, um, to be more okay with the waves and the cycles of grief, because it really does cycle. You you were saying that when you had kids, it felt like it was, you know, right back there. And that was actually one of the most helpful things that someone said to me shortly after I lost my mom was she was, this was someone who had experienced the loss of her father many, many years ago. And she said that just expect grief to hit you, that some days you're going to be totally fine. And then other days you're going to be as if you're right there at the funeral again. And that's part of it. Um, I watched a YouTube video the other day of a woman speaking about grief and saying how people kind of say, get over it. Um, But you don't get over it. You move on with it. 
Um, and that's something that's so important to me that we all have these moments that it hits you and you feel really raw, no matter how long ago it was. And connecting with other people who have experienced loss, whether it's pregnancy loss or the loss of a relative or a dear friend, um, it's so important to like your own well-being and to everybody else's well-being too, that we can share these moments together. Absolutely. And then also understanding too, that everybody's grief might look different. Um, you know, some people process grief differently, but we all grieve. Like it's a, it's an innate human emotion and human experience. It's part of the human experience. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't know what faith background you come from, um, but I'm a Christian. And so like for me, that is a big part of like who I am is like just knowing that like God is with me in my grief and Mm -hmm. he sees my grief. He has he himself has experienced grief and like that grief is normal and it's okay. And I love what you said about like we can't hide in our loss and our sadness. And so often I feel like you know, society has put pressure on us to be okay and like be strong and don't cry and all that kind of like pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. But a lot of times like that's not healthy. Um, Like I know when I when I lost my mom at 17, like I didn't grieve properly. I, I pushed it aside. I just tried to like be strong for my dad. You know, I was a senior in high school and my sister was, a you know, she was grown and, and away. And so like it was just me and my dad and I was going off to college next year and I was just like, I'm going to be fine. And I just didn't deal with it. I didn't yeah. go to therapy. I didn't do any of that stuff. And so after last year, when I finally got, went and got into therapy, you know, 16 years later, I went into therapy and all of a sudden I was like, oh, okay, I'm now processing like a lot of grief I should have probably processed earlier, Uh, you know, and so like at some point you're going to have to process it. You're going to have to get it out. Um, For me, it just took 16 years um, and it took the loss of two babies in order for me to do it, Um, you know, but it's the more that I began to talk about it and even like talking about getting help and getting counseling and therapy and all that kind of stuff. Like I am a huge advocate for it now because I'm like, y'all, I really wish I would have done that sooner. Uh, Cause you know, I, I can now process things more in a healthier way. Um, and like you said too, it gives people the opportunity to kind of come out of the woodwork. And I've had, I've had women, I don't know if you experienced this too, but as you shared stories, I've had older women like in their sixties and seventies, come out and say, you know what? I experienced this too when I was your age, but back then we just didn't talk about it. And I just pushed it aside. I never named my babies. Cause, and, and, you know, I'm now able to like, think about those children that I lost. And and I feel like I have the freedom to do that like 50 years after the fact. And that was, isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. I had one woman come forward. I had a lot of people come forward and share their miscarriage stories with me. Um, but the most fascinating and one to me was the best friend. This is a little complicated. The best friend of my best friend's grandmother. So she was, you know, grandmother age shared with me that she, her first pregnancy was a molar pregnancy. And back then the only known treatment was a hysterectomy. And so 
you know, she was all excited to have a child and ended up incapable of getting pregnant again. And she shared that with me and shared her sadness about that with me. And she essentially adopted my best friend's family as her kind of surrogate kids. Um, but just the sadness around where science was back then, um, that, you know, there, you know, it may have been treatable, um, for her as it was for me. And I was able to go on and have a second kid and that, you know, a healthy pregnancy and a, and a happy ending, Um, and, and she wasn't able to have that. And so, you know, that have hearing her share that story was super meaningful to me. Um, and, you know, put a lot of things in context for me that I was very lucky, um, that I was able to have this treatment, even though it was really rough. Um, but I was able to maintain my fertility, um, and go on to have another child. Yeah, absolutely. It gives you so much perspective. Um, but one of the things that I, I, you know, I've kind of learned about you is that you've used these experiences to really fuel a greater purpose in your life and in your business. Um, how has the loss of your mom and the experience of, of this devastating molar pregnancy, um, how has that fueled your life now and your perspective? It has fueled it tremendously. I think one of the um, ways it has fueled it is in a kind of need to nurture my creative side. Um, That in my previous career, I loved the service that I was doing and the impact that I was making, but I felt unfulfilled creatively that I was not able to spend the time that I wanted writing about the things that I wanted to write about, um, designing the things that I wanted to see in the world, um, you know, and ultimately creating this, these products that I felt were, you know, better than what's currently out there. And I learned in that period that I needed to create time and space for that, that I just hadn't been that before I had kids, I think every every parent can understand this, that there are things that you might consider hobbies before you have kids that just drop once you have kids. Um, and sometimes that's okay. And that's no big deal. And, you know, you wait until your kids are a little bit older and you can find the time and space for them. But sometimes those hobbies are actually things that are really central to who you are. And if you're not creating space for them, you feel, you feel unfulfilled. Um, I found that after I was sick and I lost my mom, that I absolutely needed to create space for that and build creativity into my everyday. And so that's the kind of underpinning of my business, that I am always making things, whether it's the designs for my clothes, designing the social media campaign, writing blog posts, all of it scratches the creative itch that I have and ensures that every day I'm doing something that both feels meaningful to me and impactful to the world. 
I love that perspective. And I also am a creator. Um, I'm a writer and I love photography. So I like I have that's a really common sentiment that I've heard from other women. It's like when you experience tragedy or trauma or loss of any kind, it's like you find kind of this outlet that you need in order to kind of you know, funnel or fuel that creativity or, or maybe it's exercise or whatever it is. It's like you, you find that outlet to really process feelings and, 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 and grief and all of that. So I love that perspective. Thank you so much for sharing that. So Mariana, I would just love for you to just kind of share here in the last few minutes before we transition to our get to know you round, share with us kind of, you know, you, you launched Jackalo in July of 2018 and you have, I know, learned a lot along the way where, what's your vision for um, kind of the immediate future and the future future? Sure. I I think the thing I'm most excited about is implementing the circular aspect of Jackalow. So circularity is kind of a big buzz term right now in the sustainability space, but really it just means finding ways to reuse as much as possible for as long as possible. And so I always found that there's a great market for secondhand clothes for little kids, Um, you know, your infants and your toddlers, but for bigger kids, there's really not a lot of secondhand clothes available. And so my aim with Jackalow is to make clothes that are so well made that they will last beautifully uh, in that hand-me-down phase or in the secondhand market. And so we we offer what I call a trade-up program where families can send back their used Jackalow clothing, and we then wash, repair, and if needed, repair um, and resell them. And this is an aspect of the business I'm really excited about. So, you know, I launched the business with this in mind, um, but, you know, until I have enough customers whose kids have outgrown their Jackalow clothes, that aspect of the business is not fully realized. Um, so that's the element that I'm really excited about, that I'm just starting to get the trickles in of some hand-me-downs that are ready to be um, washed, and most of them don't need any repairs, um, but washed and resold. And then for garments that are not able to be um, resold, that are not in a good enough condition, the aim is to upcycle as much as possible. And so that's kind of my next creative challenge is like, what does the upcycling aspect look like for anything that is, is not usable as a hand-me-down? Um, and how do we implement this second part of the company that's focused on making our garments available to people as secondhand garments that are well-loved and well-cared for? That is a genius idea. That is so genius. I love it. Well, you know, I can't claim total credit for it because Patagonia and I it sounds like a similar program to Patagonia. Do that. And so, you know, I was really looking at what they're doing and I kept thinking, you know, people, kids outgrow clothes so quickly and not everybody has a second child or friend or neighbor to hand their their kids clothes down to. And one thing I cannot stand is whether it's online or on a clothing rack, I'm not someone who enjoys thrifting. You know, 
I am so impressed by people who go to thrift stores and get these amazing finds, but I feel like every time I go to a secondhand store, I just find nothing. And so what I want is to know, oh, the brand I love sells their clothes secondhand, the same place I would buy their new clothes. And so I want to keep it all together to make it easier for customers. You know that you can find it exactly on our website. You don't have to go searching through eBay or some other website to try to find our garments secondhand. I cannot get enough of that. I think it's amazing. I just wish more companies would do that because I agree. It's just... It's such a challenge with kids' clothes. Like once you, once they grow out of them, what do you do with them? And if you can't resell them, you know, in like a you know like in an eBay or a buy sell page kind of situation, you know, what do you do with them? And how do you how do you upcycle them? How do you recycle them? Um, that's a common pain point I hear from so many parents. And so I just think it's genius. I cannot wait to see it grow. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And I think one other aspect of it that's really important. And I think, you know, I, I remember listening to a previous episode and you talking about some of your, your mission work. Um, I did my public health internship in Rwanda and I remember very clearly the quantity of secondhand clothes coming from the United States that was sold there. And Rwandans actually hate that. Um, in oh, fact, yeah. five, yeah, five countries in Central and Eastern Africa came together to try to ban the import of secondhand clothes. And when we use clothes willy-nilly and put them in that box in the neighborhood that, you know, is supposed to be doing, you know, potentially some charitable good, you know, they're sending country they're sending clothes to a place that doesn't want them and a, and a place where it's really disrupting their economy. And from an environmental perspective, how much better is it to keep clothes kind of close to home so that they get as much use with, use with as little transport as possible? And so that's also kind of part of the concept there, that we can keep clothes from being shipped off to places where it's potentially disrupting the local economy um, and keeping them in use for as long as possible, as close to where they come from as possible. Yes, yes, yes. Amen and amen. Mariana, I love that so much. Um, well, now is the portion of the show that is one of my favorite portions, and that's where we transition a little bit just to get to ask some fun, lighthearted, get to know you questions. So, uh, Mariana, are you ready? Yes, I am ready. All right. Question number one What was your favorite TV show to watch growing up? Oh. So I'm putting it in the context of the times. I loved the Cosby show. And now I feel creeped out by that whole situation. So, you know, not everything stands the test of time. Not everything stands the test of time. I know. we've. I, my husband and I have had that same conversation. <laughs> oh, man. I know. Isn't it sad? It's so sad. Um, but the Cosby show, it was a good, it was a classic. It was a yeah. classic. Um, what cheesy song do you have totally memorized? Oh, this is a little bit hard. Uh, you know, I, my son has been listening to the soundtrack to A Star is Born on repeat, oh. just so consistently. And I have, I, I always feel like the part where she becomes a pop star 
those songs get a little cheesy for my taste, but they've been on repeat in my house. So I kind of have all of them memorized. All of them memorized. Hey, I, I have a tremendous memory for songs. And so I can hear a song I haven't heard in months and still know it. Yep, me too. Um, or years. I don't know wh- why that takes up space in my brain, but yeah, I, I know all of the words to all of the songs in that soundtrack. I love it. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Um, what book or books are you reading right now or have you read recently that you are loving? Okay. I am currently reading The Power, mm. um, which is, I think it's a book that came out last year um, and it's been dubbed as A, a Handmaid's Tale for the modern ages. Ooh. It's fascinating. I'm only about a quarter of a way through it. Um, but it's really, really, really interesting. I'm also reading, I tend to read like three or four books at a time and kind of all different subjects. So I'm also reading a parenting book, um, called the whole brain child, which I totally love. And I was thinking about it when you talked about, um, not processing trauma, they have a really interesting section on teaching kids to process difficult things. So very good read. Excellent, excellent resource for parents. I will definitely be definitely be checking that one out for sure. I, I love it. And for, for folks with kids ages five and up, they have cartoons in the book that are specifically for kids so that they can read it and learn the concepts at an age appropriate level. So really, really excellent tool. That is incredible. Uh, I love it. Yeah. So those are kind of the two biggies that I've I've been reading lately. That's great. I will definitely be checking those out for sure. Um, and then my last question is, what does it mean to you to run a business with purpose? It means staying true to my core, that I want to do something that's improving the world that's leaving it a better place than you know I came into it and it means constantly checking in with that does the progress that I'm making feel right does do the decisions I'm making feel true to that mission and it's not just in my work but it's in you know my family life how how we run our household how we teach our children um, and how we spend our days that, you know, I don't want to be um, consistently focused on work, that I want to be able to put that down and really focus on my family because that's how I'm going to ensure that my kids feel supported and connected and like they are able to make changes in the world in a meaningful way. Mariana, I love that answer. Thank you so much. Uh, this has just been such a rich conversation. And I just really appreciate your perspective um, on life after loss and the way that you've you, you've used that tragedy and, and trauma to really fuel your, your life and your business and your family um, and just the impact that you're making. Uh, I just I'm so grateful for you and your perspective. And I, I can't wait to continue to see you grow and thrive um, in your family and in your business. Thank you so much, Molly. It was so great to talk to you. I'd love to know what you loved about this episode or something that you learned. If you do, let me know on social media. You can find me at Still Being Molly or at Business with Purpose Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. And don't forget that hashtag Business with Purpose Podcast. 
And be sure to check out and shop the Sago Designs Fall Collection at Sago Designs. That's S-S-E-K-O designs.com forward slash Molly Stillman. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If you're a first time listener, welcome new friend. Be sure to visit the archives for past shows featuring so many incredible people who are changing the world with their businesses. And if you're one of my regulars, thank you for your support. Don't forget to head on over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and click that subscribe button to never miss a new episode of the show. Would you take a moment to leave a review? Hopefully five stars, but leaving a review really does help me to know what you're liking and how the show is impacting you. The show is edited by my amazing husband and executive producer, John Stillman, with support from Kelly Dalton, and the music is by Mark Killian of Third Wheel Media. Thank you so much for listening. Go do something good with purpose on purpose. Purpose.